Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School. The school welcomes artists from around the world to join the five-day virtual intercession drawing marathon entitled Drawing on Your Past the Mind's Eye with Graham Nixon and Guests. It's held from Thursday, March 23rd to Monday, March 27th. It's rigorous and immersive. The Studio School's legendary marathons present an extensive range of art-making strategies, comprehensive critiques, and inspirational discussions. Expansive first-hand discoveries in marathons propel artists to relate to drawing, painting, and sculpture as direct methodologies for understanding their experience in the world, the profound impact of which continues far beyond each marathon's conclusion. Visit nyss.org to apply today. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden Artist Colors makes the best acrylics, Williamsburg oils, and core watercolors. And you can find them in your local art store or online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is also sponsored by Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. Fulcrum makes amazing coffee. You can head over to their website at fulcrumcoffee.com and check out their subscriptions. They have an amazing variety that you could choose from and have coffee delivered to your house every month. Everything from light roast subscription to espresso to all brands, single origin. They even have a sunset subscription, a jazz alley night subscription. It's a really cool curated coffee experience that can be delivered to your door. And you can get a discount by adding the code ALFREDSTUDIO whenever you check out from the website. Fulcrum Coffee Roasters from Seattle, check them out. Didier William is originally from Port-au-Prince, Haiti. He earned a BFA in painting from the Maryland Institute College of Art and an MFA in painting and printmaking from Yale University School of Art. His work has been exhibited at the Bronx Museum of Art, the Museum of Latin American Art in Long Beach, the Museum at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, the Carnegie Museum, Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art, and the Fig Museum of Art. He is represented by James Fuentes Gallery in New York and Altman Siegel Gallery in San Francisco. William was an artist in residence at the Marie Walsh Sharp Art Foundation in Brooklyn, a 2018 recipient of the Rosenthal Family Foundation Award for the American Academy of Arts and Letters, a 2020 recipient of the Joan Mitchell Foundation Painters and Sculptors Grant, a 2021 recipient of a Pew Fellowship Grant from the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage, and a 2023 recipient of the Lewis Comfort Tiffany Foundation Biennial Grant. He's taught at several institutions including Yale, Vassar, Columbia, UPenn, and SUNY Purchase. He's currently Assistant Professor of Expanded Print at Mason Gross School of the Arts at Rutgers University. Didier and I speak about Haiti and Miami, school experiences, family, teaching, and much more. Here's our conversation. It's hard to hide. It doesn't go away. 
I mean, you got to be pretty <laughs> measured to be able yeah. to hide that. So, so you don't listen to much. But what about? Well, you're not listening to podcasts probably with the kids around. But uh, what's the music situation like at home? We we got YouTube music, um, and so my husband and I listen to '90s music pretty much nonstop. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, for them, they're listening to, like kid stuff and the Disney stuff and the Encanto soundtrack and yeah um and then when I'm at the studio I have my headphones on and I'm usually either listening to audiobooks or sometimes music yeah um pop but mostly 90s what is uh what what kind of 90s are we talking I mean 90s was good for a lot of stuff 90s was great I mean hip hop R&B yeah um some alt rock stuff um I I used to I used to have Evanescence on blast uh, in my angsty teen days, <laughs> <laughs> and and my playlist was weird because it would go from that to like Biggie, um, to like Hootie and the Blowfish, um, Tony Braxton, <laughs> and then to like Tupac. So it was it was my my playlist all over the place. Yeah, yeah. The nineties had that ability. There was some strong, sort of like currents that were a little separate you know it kind of fused like things fused a bit but in the yeah. 90s you had a good i mean because i remember i think part of it was growing up skateboarding you know there was a you would listen to you know the smiths and black flag and then public enemy and like the ghetto yeah. boys at the same time exactly. which was a weird kind of change you know <laughs> Yeah, no, you you know, as you say that, I'm like, yeah, the 90s was really good for that. And, yeah. and in our case, in particular, I'm the youngest of three. And my older brothers, we got, when we moved here, they were in middle school and high school. And so they were like all hip hop all the time. Right. Um, I mean, my, my brother had a 1989 Ford Taurus and you could hear him blasting Biggie driving down the down the street. But then I went to school in South Miami um and it was mostly it was predominantly white school um so the kids weren't really listening to a lot of hip-hop so i would be exposed to all this other music and it it combined in a way that was seamless to me but um kind of frenetic yeah. <laughs> looking from the outside um but as you mentioned that i'm like yeah that, then that, i think i think also because music the music video space um, of MTV and BET was so much more focused on music at the time. Yeah. Um, the, it wasn't odd to go from one extreme end of the spectrum to the other. Right. It didn't feel odd at least. Well, it was like one channel for it all to play out. Right. Basically. Exactly. So exactly. We're going to get, you know, yo MTV raps and then 120 minutes. Some people just right now were just like, what was that? Like, they're too young to even know what you know yeah. what I mean. But when you were growing yeah. up, like when I was growing up, UMTV raps in 120 minutes were like the two things. You know, they were the yeah. the sort of like curated playlists, basically that you would check out for sure. And that was the yeah. only way to get some stuff. You know what I mean with visuals. Yeah, and you know that's how I learned. I feel like that's how I learned English. I mean, we moved here when I was six, and. Um, music and 90s hip hop I listened to nonstop partly because I loved it but also because my brothers listened to it and I did everything they did um, and that's that sort of accelerated my um, 
ability to like grasp the English language. Yeah. Um, I spoke it quicker than anyone else in our family. I think partly because I was young, but also because I had this like voracious appetite for all things American. Yeah. And that, cool. and that felt like quintessentially American. Definitely. You know, we'll grow up, but you know, coming over cause you were young, right? You, did you say I you was were six? six. Mm-hmm. So you have like the hip hop and then you have like, I don't even know what white music is in Florida. But, um, but you had the Latino, yeah. like you had like I'm sure salsa merengue and bachata and all yeah. that stuff happening too, or you know Cuban. We African. did, we did, which I didn't really respond to, to be honest. Um, yeah. it, it was certainly there, and it was certainly part of Miami, but I never sort of sunk my teeth into it. Um, and '90s alt rock was my like bread, and I loved it. I, I just. I think also because it was such a, as I got older and was finding myself in this new space, there was the, the anxiety of it all felt yeah. sort of encapsulated by, um, my nineties alt rock music in a very specific way, which, um, I, I responded to, um, especially as I became a teenager and, um, you know, started to understand myself right. within the rest of the world, within this weird city that was kind of multicultural but also super racist and kind of diverse but also super segregated um it was it was interesting that you know and i i I was busing from we lived in north miami and i was taking i was going to school in south miami so every day i would be on the bus for an hour and a half each way yeah it's a long and there was and there was nothing to do but like put my headphones on and listen to music um so it it was a huge part of my life. What about movies and TV? Was that a big... Because I feel like a lot of people, when they come over, you know, at, around that age, you know, TV, movies, music, it's like a portal, mm-hmm. you know? It's it's a way in. I mean, were you watching a lot of stuff? Um, let me see. What do I remember from that time? I remember uh, my brothers and their friends... Um, taking the bus to the movie theater to AMC on 79th street to go see house party. Uh, and I was so sick. I was like coughing and I had like my throat was, but I, I, I was like, I'm not missing this trip. Uh, and I hurried up and got dressed and I begged my parents if I could tag along. Um, and I went with them and sat in the theater and watched, um, Kid and Play's House Party. I think it was House Party one, House Party 2. Um, so I remember that. Um, what other movies? That one is probably the most vivid. You I was so TV young. Watcher? At the t- oh, we were huge TV watchers. Um, we actually had, my brothers and I actually had a rule because uh, we, fi- we had one TV in the living room. We would fight over it a lot and my parents didn't step in. They were like, figure yes, it out. You sorted out. And yeah. And so <laughs> we came up with this rule that whoever, um, whoever turned on the TV first in the morning could control what we watched for the whole day. And it would only reset if one of our parents turned the TV off. Um, and so I became really good at like waking up at like 5 a.m. And just camping out in front of the TV until <laughs> they woke up to see that I had been the first one to turn the TV on. Um, 
TGIF was huge at the time. So, of course, we'd watch um, Cosby Show. And my mom and I would um, really get into the Golden Girls. Um, I think, one, Golden Girls is one of my favorite shows. But also, it was one of the few shows where I felt like she, even before she understood English, she could understand the humor. Yeah. And so I was in school and I was learning English and stuff. And um, she wasn't picking up English as quickly, but then she and I would sit down and watch this show and she would just be like cracking up. And, you know, English wasn't a barrier uh, when we would sit down and watch, watch Golden Girls. Mrs. Doubtfire also is a oh, huge yeah, one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I remember when that came out, it was really big in our family. Like all of us um, just got such a huge kick out of that. Of that movie as i'm sitting here like they're slowly um coming back to me uh so yeah it's there's there were a few things that like stuck out and um all of us could consume at once i also think um we had different uh, certainly for my brothers i was six they were nine and 14 and so we moved here at like very different social ages. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't until we became adults that the three of us can kind of like meet at the same level. Cause in our adolescence, we had very different relationships to American life. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about. What's like a big difference, like you and your older, your oldest sibling, culturally mm -hmm. like the difference between the Haitian experience socially growing up and then what you were coming up with I think my brother Alan um, moved here at 14 and so he moved here right into high school he moved here still with a thick accent that's tough um, right in the beginning of like that sort of awkward social stage where you know boys and girls and all that all that kind of chemistry is starting to happen socially yeah. and chemically and emotionally right as he was beginning that process we moved to this country um so i think he had a tougher time it's it's, it's interesting i'm i'm pausing because in recent years we've the three of us have talked about this and i think we each had it tough in very different very different ways and yeah. so um the kind of acculturation to American life wasn't as tough for me uh, because I was six and I had less, I had less like baggage. I had less, I had less stuff to um, sort of mix in. But I think very quickly at around 12 or 13, I realized I was gay and um, kept that to myself for a very long time. And that presented its own, you know, presented its own set of issues. Um, and then my brother, Michael, uh, my, my middle brother, um, I think socially it was less tough for him, but um, still pretty difficult. He was in middle school. We went, he went to a middle school that wasn't super favorable to immigrants in general, Haitians in particular. And so he had a couple episodes um, with kids who were just being kind of nasty. Um, and and it, it's interesting to think about because you would Miami sort of presents itself as this kind of city that is deeply multicultural and Latin American corridor to the United States and all this kind of stuff. But growing up as three Haitian kids, three Haitian immigrants in the early nineties, um, 
it was a it, it wasn't it wasn't a piece of cake <laughs> um and one would think it would have been because miami has the largest haitian population outside of haiti miami is such a sort of quintessential caribbean and latin american city um but i think it does have this other sort of valence to it that um is deeply xenophobic um it's, it's still and <laughs> it's still florida you, it is. you know what i mean it's still florida yeah. I mean, yeah. and look at the news these days. You know, I try not to and I mean, go deep in it, but it's just yeah. funky. You know, like the the whole power situation and all that. Yeah. And I've been back several times now recently, and it's heartening to see that like there is a really large and vocal Haitian population, especially in North Miami, um, where there are sort of moments of resistance and pushing back and affirmation and um people doing some really interesting and really powerful stuff that you know i wish i had when i was a kid there um you know perhaps if if some of that energy was around i uh, maybe would have stayed um but i think it affected my brothers and i very very differently and then it affected you know what parts of american life we found solace in differently too um it's it, it you know i didn't I actually didn't notice it until my husband and I got married and he pointed out that the three of us have very different accents. Uh, my brother Alan has a pretty thick accent. My brother Michael has a sort of milder accent and I have no accent whatsoever. It's and it tracks. Yeah. You're right. Age related. And it tracks pretty well with like um, how we sort of negotiated our immigration and um, acculturation into the United States. Yeah, it's so interesting how there's like a break-off point with the accents, yeah. you know, and yeah, it's just uh, that, do you feel like it would have, well, probably would have, but I mean, would have been different if you went somewhere like New York, you know what I mean, or somewhere, oh, I guess there's nowhere else yeah. really like New York, you know what I mean, but Miami, yeah. it, it's just, was it's it geographic, was it, it was the convenience of being that close and maybe yeah. knowing the population there, was that the reason? That's a good, yeah. That's a really good question that I've actually never really thought about. It's hard to say because New York has a pretty sizable Haitian population. Um, here in Philly, we have a pretty sizable Haitian population. Chicago, um, Boston, um, California. I mean, nowhere like Miami. Um, but I think, you know, I think geography does play a pretty big role, right? I think historically Miami has been the place where Haitians who are able to save enough money and are willing to um, risk their lives to a certain extent can get on a boat and pray and hope and make it, hope they make it to shore yeah. and um, hope they don't get deported or hope they don't get um, held at Chrome Detention Center in Miami. Um, I think I think because of its proximity to Haiti, Miami has been the place that has been. Uh, a beacon for a lot of Haitians. That's not to take anything away from New York City. I think New York is, um, I lived in New York for eight years and one of the things I loved most about it was that like a Caribbean, a, New York had like a thick Caribbean population, very different from Miami, but um, still just as vibrant and just as energetic um, and just as active. Um, would it have been different growing up there versus Miami? I'm not sure. Um, 
you know, I think this country in general has a uneasy relationship with immigrants and, and immigration that's growing ever more uneasy by the day, by the minute. Um, so I don't, I, it, it's hard to like measure and say, well, this place would have been better. Right. Um, Cause by the same, you know, in the same way that I'm like, yeah, Miami is still Florida. Um, I'm also like, yeah, we're still talking about the United States. Yeah. Um, no, definitely. A, a but I mean, I've, that, you know, I've lived in New York for 23 years, you know, and yeah. I, I grew up in Pittsburgh where it's not that diverse. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have, it's like pockets, you know what I mean? Where people yeah. are ethnically broken up right. and I've driven across the country, went on tour and played a lot of places in the middle of nowhere and there's middle America and then there's New York yeah. or Chicago or LA, They're totally different, you know what sure. I mean? And uh, in New York, it, even though I guess it happens to some extent, it feels less pockety. It's mm-hmm. it, like where people find their population. It's more of just like a mix of people. You know what I mean? There's just people are moving around all the time and it just feels a yeah. little more fluid than, you know, finding one specific population from one place. I mean, I know that happens, but it feels yeah. like there's more of a community of people moving around in a way. I, you know, I think there is something to that. Um, I think there is something, something to that. I think, um, I'm, I can't help but think about the maps from the 2016 election um, that broke down the voting blocks in New York City um, by like city blocks and you could see who voted in what way um, and the amount of red in like Brooklyn for example was I think shocking to people mm-hmm. <laughs> Um you know, all that is to say that, like, this idea that there are certain parts of the country that are um, havens from this thing that is certainly part of our national DNA, um, I, I, I think resting there too comfortably is risky, no, even not, in a city like even not, even in a city like New York. Yeah, um, I'm not saying it's a haven at all. I'm no, no, no. I, I hear. No, I, I totally hear. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. You know, I, I, I hear that and I agree with that for sure. But, you know, I guess my point is, like, it's hard to try to think about um, or if I put myself in the position of someone who was trying to move here today, for example, um, and I was trying to advise them, should they move to Miami? Should they move to New York? Should they move to L.A.? Um I don't know how I would make that call. I guess it it would depend on what kind of infrastructure, what kind of community, what kind of social fabric um, is important to to you and and your family. For us, so much of it depended on one, proximity, like you said earlier, but then two, my mom's sister was already in Miami. My mom's sister had left Haiti, I think in like 87 or 88. Um, and she had been telling my mom, you gotta, you gotta leave, you gotta leave, you gotta leave. Um, and so because my mom's sister was always there, she was like, okay, I know somebody here. I know someone who could help us out if we get in trouble, all that kind of stuff. So that made sense for us. And I think that's often how it plays out for a lot of people who are, um, leaving their country. Uh, you know, you have a friend there, you have a cousin there, you have a family member there and they start the process of like applying for paperwork for you. Um, and that determines where you go. Um, it's such a, 
not blind, but it's such like a intense sort of hope of faith in the future. It's right. it's like taking all of your sh chips and putting them into a prospect and sort of hoping for the best. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's an amazing act. I mean, you know, you hear of stories. I was watching this one show on immigration and how they were talking about, you know, this family went from, I think it was from Vietnam to like, I don't know, mm -hmm. Iowa or something and yeah. started a restaurant and they never even really were in the restaurant food business. They just went there and they said, oh, you could just go there and open a restaurant. What a culture shock, you know what I mean? But sometimes yeah. you just go because you think, well, you know, that's going to be better. That situation is yeah. going to be better. I would think part of that factor would have to be weather, though. Come on. I mean, do you really want to, like, if you're from <laughs> if you're from somewhere really hot, do you really want to go up to, like, you know, Canada? I mean, yeah. You know. I would say, yeah, I, I would say weather, uh, but there's this, another side to the weather thing, um, which I think is geography. I know that in Miami, with, you know, Haitian immigrants, Cuban immigrants, whoever, one of the first things you do when you get there is, like, you plant stuff. And so... In our house, we had papaya, we had avocado, we had sugarcane, we had mango, and that's not that's not atypical. Um, you know, so many people who move to Miami, the you know they just immediately start planting things. One because the weather can handle it, but I think also there's an element of it that is about like making this new space, making this new geography look familiar and yeah. making it look like something something you left back home. Um, and and for us, I, I know that was certainly part of it. My my dad was always back there, like sticking something into the ground that would pop up later and become something we could eat, or that my mom could like make juice out of, or whatever. Right. Yeah. It's like in a way, just putting roots in, you know, to this exactly. place. So exactly. And going into all this stuff, I think you know when I look at your work, it there seems to be a thread there. And I guess that's yeah. jumping to the present in a way, but you know, it feels about place roots, um, mm -hmm. these people experience like location tied to experience. So like, when did you, you know, were you drawing as a kid? Were you, when did, when, how did creativity merge with your youth outside mm -hmm. of uh, house party too? Because let's be honest, <laughs> that was an eye opener. <laughs> yeah. Um, how did creativity merge with my youth? That's a good. That's a good question. I started. Well, yeah, I used to sketch a lot, um, but I'm always hesitant with this question because I don't think I. I don't think I knew that like I was even sketching. I think I was just like grabbing, markers, pens, whatever could make a mark, and just like scribbling and exhausting, physical energy that I had that was stored up. Um, and then once I got to school we had this like art section of the day at Little River Elementary School, which I don't even think exists anymore. Um, and during the art section of the day, um, my teacher would hand out, hand out like pieces of construction paper and markers and stuff. And we would scribble and draw and do all kinds of stuff. And one day she saw this piece of paper that I had scribbled on. And um, I think I had made this little portrait and she grabbed it and kept it and the following day called my mom dad and brother in mom and dad came in my brother also came uh at the time my parents still hadn't their english still wasn't great um 
and so when she brought my mom in my, and told my mom, I think he's talented. I think he has um, some 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 chops, and I I want to recommend him to leave this school and go to a, a magnet school in South Miami, where he could take art classes for four hours a day, in addition to math, science, English, and all that kind of stuff. And um, my parents immediately said, "Yes, absolutely. Let's let's go for it." Um, to their credit, they weren't afraid. And my teacher told them right off the bat that, you know, this is going to mean that he's going to be taking the bus an hour and a half each way. That you're going to have to take him to a bus stop at 5 a.m. in the morning. Um, and then he's going to get on the bus and sit on the bus for an hour and a half. And then he's going to go to school and do the exact same thing in the reverse. And they said, let's do it. Um, so starting in fourth grade, I started getting bused to South Miami to take uh, art classes at this um, South Miami Middle School, South Miami Elementary School, um, and then progressed from there to a secondary magnet school, and then progressed from there to New World School of the Arts, um, which was the first time I saw people and other um, artists who were doing this thing, were obsessed with this thing, and started to connect it to a life, not even a career but a life and went to school at a place where my teachers weren't just like you know giving me construction paper and markers they were giving me canvas and they were giving me acrylic and they were exposing me to charcoal and we had a nude model um you know we had model drawing sessions in high school uh which was amazing um and we had that all four years and so it started to become part of my day-to-day and I could start to see it as part of my life, not even as like a career choice or anything like that. I don't think I was thinking that far ahead, but I just saw it as as an inclusive part of my day, right. um, which was awesome and kind of uh, phenomenal as I think about it now. Um, and then from New World, I went to MICA, Maryland Institute College of Art, um, applied and got accepted to MICA. And while I was at MICA, I started to take painting a lot more seriously and had amazing phenomenal faculty um and my senior year there i i was making these like brown on brown paintings they were essentially like drawings just with oil paint and i was um, scratching into them a lot uh, with rags and other tools and stuff um and i liked them i thought they were fine but my, my teachers thought they were like really exceptional works and um, suggested that I apply to graduate school. At the time, I wasn't thinking about graduate school. I thought I was going to stay in Baltimore. I was a bouncer in um, in this club in downtown Baltimore, and I was making some really good money bouncing. So in my vision, I was like, all right, I'm going to graduate, get another job in addition to bouncing. I'll work that job during the day, and I'll bounce at night and then make my paintings during my free time. Um, but the painting faculty at Micah were like, no, you got to go to grad school. Um, and so I was like, all right, fine. So I, I applied to Yale, um, and got an interview and then got in and I was like, well, shit, I guess I'm going to grad school. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and it was a good thing I did cause I had an amazing time there with some phenomenal people. Um, and, and, you know, luckily I had the right kind of steering to, you know, convince me that I had this other path that my my heart was asking me to listen to. Um, and that 
brings me to the present. Well, do you think even if you didn't, um, even if you didn't go to grad school and you pursued that path of like two jobs, you'd still be making your work, right? So, or do you think it would have fallen? I think so. I think so. I don't know. Um, I think I would still be making my work. I don't know what my work would look like. Yeah. Um, I don't know what, I don't know what, uh, life my work would have taken. Cause I think when I got to graduate school, I stopped working with the figure after graduate school, I still stopped working with the figure. And then it wasn't until about maybe three or four years later that I started to bring the figure back in. So the work went through like pictorial and kind of material shifts before, during, and after grad school. Um, and it's hard to imagine what those shifts would have looked like if grad school wasn't part right. part of the story. Are you actually making a case for graduate school to our listeners? <laughs> not that's one so iota. Not, that's so not <laughs> du jour right now, you know? <laughs> uh, not one iota. Actually, when I, when I was chair of a graduate program, I, much to my dean's dismay, I would often <laughs> tell folks, if you want to be an artist, you, you don't need to go to graduate school. Right. Going to grad school um, is not necessary to be an artist. You can go be an artist um, just fine without grad school. You go to grad school for very, very specific reasons. Yeah, no one needs um, to do anything. You can do it anyway. Yeah. But you do need an MFA exactly. to teach, and a lot of people these days... If you want to teach, yeah, if you want to teach, for sure. think of that. Like, when I went to grad school, I wasn't thinking about teaching at all. I went to grad school because people were like, yeah, that's what you do. And back then, there wasn't even a thought of, like, not doing, or, like, if you were serious about it, it was like, you go to grad school. Right. And there was no internet, yeah. so it was just like, you went, you applied to the places that they told you to apply to. So you didn't even... Really and, 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 there were, and there were a handful of of places to even apply to. Um, yeah. I think, I think now there's so many more options, um, especially fully funded options that make, you know, make it harder for places that are charging these kids like 70, 80, $90,000. It's hard to make a case for that now. It makes my um, head spin. The, the, yeah, you can go to grad school. I mean, where I teach, you know, there's assistantships, there's funding and you know, there's some places where, I mean, or or you still you could basically get paid to go to grad school, like you have to work, right. you know what I mean, and do student work or teaching or whatever. But you actually come out on the plus side, which is yeah, amazing. that did not it's, happen. It's amazing, and and it's it's you know I think schools need to make it a priority to figure out how to provide this experience to young artists without sending them into six figure debt. Yeah, sure. um, it's it's sinful, um, and you know, luckily. I wasn't in that scenario, um, but so many people are, and it's it's really um, it's really disgusting. Yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, it's crazy. But um, so, but grad school worked for you. It sounded like it. It gave. You I think the, it worked really well for me. I think it gave me the arena to work things out, and I I enjoyed um, I enjoyed the alchemy of. Uh, art education. Um, I enjoyed the process of like thinking through ideas with people um, that I didn't realize I had an appetite for that until I started it and was like, oh, wow, I, this was this is really um, fulfilling for me. And then afterwards, I started teaching. Uh, my first teaching job was at Vassar, and which is a liberal arts program, very different from the two programs I went to as a student. What year was and that? And admitted... Oh, uh, 2010 to 2017. Wasn't that right after you graduated? 
No, I graduated in 09, so I took a year off. Oh, well, I, mean, I wasn't off. I, I, that's right I, after. I, <laughs> yeah, so I so I taught, I worked for Peter Halley from 2009 to 2010, and then I started teaching in 2010. That I mean, I mean it in the sense of like, like I didn't teach soon, until soon after, like a decade after I got out of grad school. You know what I mean? And yeah. I felt like yeah. if you would have gave me a teaching position one year out of grad school, I didn't even know how to put my pants on yet. Like, I didn't even know what I was doing. That's pretty impressive <laughs> that you were teaching kids. Do you know what I mean? Like you're, I mean, I don't I don't know what they learned, but <laughs> I was up there uh, doing my thing, and hopefully they got something out of it. I'm sure. Um, but it's it's. But it was, it was a, it was the, it was such, um, my, teaching at Vassar was such a great it was such a, a great experience. I had amazing colleagues. Um, I was terrified because it's a BA program, not a BFA program. So I was like, you know, I know how to talk to nerdy art kids. You know, these kids are like actual <laughs> intelligent, you know, like these kids come, they, they're coming at me with a different sort of set of, um, of concerns. Like, how do I, how do I communicate with them? But it was the best. It was the absolute best. I mean, I, I think I had to rethink about the language I was using to describe art and to describe um, the kind of provocative art problems that we present to students in art school. And in so doing, I it, it helped not only my pedagogy, but also my practice. Um, I had students who were philosophy majors and chemistry majors and pre-law. And these were students who were just as focused and just as rigorous about art and art making um, and process and materials and having to sort of meet them there and not be able to indulge in art jargon um, was so powerful and so fulfilling. Um, not to mention that commute to Vassar is gorgeous, yeah. hugging the Hudson River the whole time. And it was the reverse commute. So it was never crowded. Get on the train from Grand Central and just <laughs> like sit there and just Sounds like you miss it. Stare at the river for two hours. I, it, it was beautiful. It was really... <laughs> was it a time it was really... Is that why you stopped? It was just like a fixed term thing? No, it wasn't fixed term. Um, I had been there for a while, and I think I was ready for a tenure track position, and they didn't have a tenure track, which is I was just on a revolving contract. Right. Um, and and so I you know, shifted gears and started... Um, I, I started running the grad program at Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, uh, here in Philadelphia, which is what brought my husband and I to Philly in the first place. Right. Um, I teach at Penn State, so I'm also going to Pennsylvania. I mean, I live in New York, but I'm there, you know, every week. I commute. Oh, um, which which Penn State campus? At main campus. That's where I went to undergrad. Okay. So I ended up filling in a position years ago for one of my old professors when they went on sabbatical, and I really loved it. I never thought I would teach necessarily. But once I started yeah. doing it, I really loved it. And when a position opened, I, you know, I took it. So uh, I really love teaching. Yeah. yeah. That's that's not the same commute as you're talking about the Vassar. The the Vassar commute was long. It was especially on lo like long crit days. You'd be like at class, then crit all night, and then get on, try to jump on that last train out of Poughkeepsie. Um, and it's a local train, not an express train. <laughs> Those days were long, um, but it was it was uh, it was such an awesome job. I I think you know, um, and something that they don't particularly call it a foundations program at Vassar, but um, mm -hmm. drawing is sort of foundational to 
everything else in the art department. You have to take you have to take the year of drawing before you can take printmaking, before you can take painting, before you can take you have to sort of fulfill this year of drawing. Um which I thought was just so good. Like, you know, and it wasn't just drawing, it was thinking about um how do you trace the process of looking? How do you sort of encapsulate the process of looking into a time-based system and then create a system to trace that process? And that's that's what we meant when we said drawing. It wasn't about rendering or anything like that. Right. Um, and so students could take that sort of lens and apply it accordingly and move into any direction with it. And I, just, I thought it was really sort of, really powerful for this tiny little liberal arts program to be able to do that. Yeah. I'm curious as to how your, you know, in teaching at Vassar kind of right after, you know, a year after graduating, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like I think of my own work after I graduated from grad school, I, I did Skowhegan right afterwards and I moved to New York and my work changed so much in that, in those next mm-hmm. couple of years. And I'm curious as to how, you know, your work shifted from getting out of school then being at Peter's for a year, seeing that whole thing, then teaching. Yeah. Like, how did your work progress or grow or change or shift? Or was it on its own track? I think there were several factors. I think working for Peter was huge. Um, I, You know, grad, grad school, we talk about making art and all these sort of philosophical and heady ideas, but the logistics of, you know, being a uh, working artist are seldom discussed in graduate school. And I think they should be, but they're seldom discussed in graduate school. And working for Peter was such a huge um, education in, in that, like watching someone build a practice and sustain it um, and make very specific like logistical decisions um, on a regular basis, like as a practice on a day-to-day was really, really, really powerful for me. Um, and then I think the recession was huge. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, I graduated yeah. in 2009 and, you know, when we left school, nobody was like knocking down the door and trying to like give me a show and um, telling me that like I had to sell stuff. and Like the the, the false urgency slash anxiety that I think a lot of young artists are presented with, especially young artists of color. Um, that wasn't happening at the time. And, and in retrospect, you know, we were freaking out, we were scared, we were nervous and all that kind of stuff about um, the state of the economic future of, of our lives in this country. But in hindsight, the amount of time, uninterrupted time that that gave me to just like fuck up and make bad paintings that nobody was ever going to see and experiment and, um, you know, do things in my Brooklyn apartment just for fun because I wasn't a show on the horizon. So I could just like do this stupid little thing and put it away, stick it under my bed, put it in the closet and not think about it. And I had that for about maybe three or four years, um, before I had any kind of opportunities to show or, um, present my work to an audience or anything like that. Um, and that was huge. That was, that was, uh, that was really, um, sort of potent time for experimentation because it felt like free time that, um, no one, it it felt like unpressured, unstructured time. 
Um, and then teaching at Vassar, I think, is another fact, another huge factor. Is I was teaching printmaking at Vassar, and I had replaced uh, Richard Bosman, who was retiring, and I, you know, it was just me teaching printmaking. So I taught intaglio, relief. Um, uh, uh, we didn't have screen printing. Um, uh, intaglio in the fall and relief in the spring. And it was monotype and, and all this kind of stuff. It was fantastic because I would drum up these little assignments and demos for my students and then bring all of that material back home with me and immediately start thinking about, okay, how do I relate to this stuff? How do I yeah. apply this stuff? And it started seeping its way into my practice in really, really sort of um, profound ways that I kind of didn't even see until it materialized into the first piece that I carved into um so it was all of those things sort of coming together that brought me to a place where the surfaces of my paintings had changed and had evolved um kind of right before my eyes without me being sort of conscious of it um the the way i thought about the painting surface i felt like was changing gradually from the moment i left graduate school to the moment i first carved into a painting which was 2014 or 2013 um in that interim i was breaking down my painting process uh, as a result of you know working for a working artist who was deeply thinking about surface teaching printmaking which was all about layering and the kind of irresolution of layers smashed together in a press um, not having the pressure of an exhibition or studio visit uh, weighing over me so that I had the time necessary to um, sort of feel confident and secure in these changes. Um, and all of that came together and brought me to a place where I, you know, picked up a wood carving tool and cut into the surface of a painting for the first time. And it was surprising and shocking and um, strange. And it was like a moment where like something happens in the studio that you didn't anticipate, that you didn't plan for. And you know that it's powerful, but you don't know why. And you just sort of sit with it for a while. And now I've had various moments like that, but I think that was the first time that happened. And I was like, I don't know what this is, but it's something. And I'm going to, I'm going to sit it aside and, and let it marinate and, and I, I think that's how it's it's come about. Yeah. As you asked the question, I realized I've never I've never sort of articulated that specific segment of time. Like, what was the shift from graduate school to sort of the beginning of the practice as it exists today? And I think those three elements in particular um, locked in together to make to make this uh, or to allow me to arrive at this place. Yeah, because it's like a confluence, you know, you do, it's, it's like a forest in the trees thing. You don't really think about it mm -hmm. when you're in it because you're just reacting and you're in the environment you're in. But it's interesting in exactly. retrospect to look back. Um, it sounds like, I mean, that kind of, well, I mean, having that teaching job, I'm sure maybe eased the blow a little bit of not having to come out the gate full on, right? Because for sure, I mean, a lot of people, I mean, like when I got out of school, I got lucky because when I got yeah. out in 99, the market was kind of like going up and then I yeah. I happened to you know get a group show and sell a couple paintings and I quit my day job and I just started doing it 
But, you know, if, if I came out and that didn't happen, I mean, I was working the job, the nine to six, nine to seven everyday job and then painting when I got home. Um, I would imagine if you have that teaching job, maybe it eases that because, you know, like yeah. in 2009, 2010 was rough, you know, wasn't like jumping. Mm-hmm. So maybe that bought you that time to be able to not feel so panicked. Yeah, know. I think so. I mean, not only the teaching job, but also working, you know, I'm, I'm, it was great working for Peter. He, you know, compensated us really well, yeah. um, gave us health insurance. Um, and I got the job working for Peter as soon as I graduated, graduated in May of 09. And I started working for Peter in July. Um, so I had, you know, by the time I moved to the city from New Haven, I had a job that I could pay rent. You know, I could, I could show my landlord my like offer letter from my job and say, look, I'm employed. Like, you know, I didn't have a hellish transition into New York city. And then while I was working for Peter, he knew I wanted to teach. Um, and he was very supportive of it. So once I stopped working for him and, and started teaching, then that became, you know, another another form of stability. So, you know, to your point, I think I had I I was lucky enough to have these kind of um, systems that allowed me to feel secure enough to play with my materials and not feel like I needed to sell a painting in order to make work. And I and I've tried to preserve that. Yeah, I really have tried to preserve that. Like. Um, relationship with <laughs> with my work and with the market um you know I, I think it 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 taints my process to start to predict too much about what i need to do with the work and what function it needs to play if that's like if i need to sell this work in order to do something it that starts to complicate what the work can be and what yeah, the work totally. can do um so that initial relationship with my practice I'm, I've, i think i've tried to maintain as much as possible over the last 15 years yeah, it's like a valuable time. I mean, I get, like I said, I got lucky when I came out and I started showing, but then around that time you're talking about, 2009-ish, 2008, mm-hmm. 2009, you know, at that point I was showing in a haunch of venison, they closed, they had sold it to Christie's, closed all their branches. So I didn't have a New York gallery for a couple years. Yeah. And at that point, I just felt like, oh, well now I can just like play around more. Or I had more time and space when you're not showing or worrying about that next show and you have a little time, you can kind of experiment and you kind of have moments like that where things slow down and things get quiet. And it's so good to sort of like hang on to that feeling and to try to make sure that you maintain that element in your work, no matter, cause it's like everything ebbs and flows all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, It's essential. It's essential. I mean, um, and I talked to my grads about this too, like, you need that time for your own experimentation uh, and for your own sort of discovery, but you also need it to figure out what kinds of time your work requires. Yeah. You know, some artists, some artists can realize a work in a couple of weeks and that lets them know that maybe in a year they can make X amount of works. And another artist might need a year and a half to realize a single work. You need, you need the time to get to know that, which the market, doesn't allow for it right. doesn't make space for yeah it's it's almost like you have to organize your life to be sustainable mm-hmm. for the kind of practice that you need to make right precisely yeah precisely. which isn't easy i mean it's it's not like everyone else it's not like the whole structure around you wants to comply none but yeah i mean and it gets harder it gets harder and harder <laughs> family in the mix it's, you know, like, oh my god <laughs> But we get to do what 
we love to do, which is, I mean, yeah. you know, that there's, there's a real beauty in that, I think. Yeah, exactly. I mean, especially, especially when you have kids, like, you know, it's something I, I think about and talk about all the time. Like I, my parents are, my dad was a mechanic. Um, he's retired now. My mom was a chef. So I didn't grow up with our parents or, you know, I, we didn't like go to museums or anything like that. My mom, uh, is a cook and a chef and that's where I saw sort of creativity materialized. And I, I'm thinking about now my kids, you know, seeing my practice and seeing the kind of agency and freedom I have and the power of that. Um, and that is, is really what's so important about this question of time, right? Like you, we also inherit time to a certain degree. Uh, we talk about inherited trauma and, and sort of inherited family histories, but we, we also inherit a relationship to time and the kind of anxiety that I think I inherited from my parents as a result of immigration and various other things. Um, my kids are going to see that play out very differently because they're going to live with a dad who has a studio practice. And um, my daughter comes with me to the studio every Saturday. And it's like, it's not, I mean, she has a blast, but it's not like, it's not a spectacle for her. It's not like, it's a, it's, it's, it's like, this is just what we do on Saturdays. We go to the studio, we paint, we draw for a little bit. We, and then we wash the brushes and we get in the car and have snacks on the way home. Yeah. Um, and I love, I love the like, the of it <laughs> for her. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I sidetracked there, but I no, no, I'm right there with you. Talk about my job. <laughs> I was, I was thinking about the same thing. Like, I think my pendulum swung too far the other way because, like, my dad drove a truck for a living, his truck driver, and my mom cleaned houses. Yeah. So as a latchkey kid, my dad was like never home, maybe four yeah. hours during the day, and then he would go to another shift. He worked double shifts. And mm -hmm. I feel what I got from them is work ethic, like work hard, and then also try to yeah. do what you want to do because they were always like, exactly. you know, if, you, if you're doing something you like to do, it's not as bad. <laughs> but yeah. with my son, I think I'm so available and I'm so around that maybe I've made things a little too easy for him. <laughs> you know what I mean? The curling parents thing or the snowplow yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Just kind of clear the path. But I think it's a result of me you know, want, always wanting to be around because my dad, he had a double shift. He couldn't be around, you know, he wanted to, but yeah. it's just hard. So I think sometimes we, as parents, swing the other way, maybe too far. We, we over, yeah, we overcorrect. And it's hard not, it's hard not to, right? Like, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's really difficult to not want to undo that um, we fell to the things that happened to happen to us as, as kids. Um, and we, in the process, sort of have to reparent ourselves as we try to parent um, these tiny little people that are now part of our lives. Yeah. Good luck. I mean, I'm I tried. I don't know if it worked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do the same thing with art because I feel like I'm so lucky to do something I love to do. And I think for years yeah. and years and years and years, all I did was work. And then you start to realize, yeah. oh, you do need other s aspects of your life. I mean, yeah. just doing this every week and talking to people has been such a gift for me because, you know, you have to recalibrate. You can't just live in that studio world only forever. You no. Know, just, it becomes like, yeah. you know, a feedback loop or something. You know? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, that that's, again, that's one of the reasons why I loved 
teaching at Vassar so much is because I had to talk to people who spoke a different language. Right. Um, had to talk to students who spoke a different language, who were just as passionate, um, just as committed, just as dedicated. Um, but I was every semester I was staring at 15 brand new faces um, who were like, I'm passionate, but my background is in chemistry. I'm dedicated to this class, but my background is in biology. Um, that did so much to, to sort of force me to become multilingual in the way that I talk about art um, and deeply influenced my practice. Um, you know, I would say right up until the present where I'm thinking about painting and printmaking interdisciplinarily. Um, and then my current position at Rutgers, um, which is an interdisciplinary print position, uh, I think the connection there, the through line there goes right through Vassar. Yeah. Do you, uh, speaking of languages, do you still speak any Creole? Absolutely. We spoke Creole um, at home exclusively and still do. Do you speak uh, any I other think, languages? No, just uh, English and Creole. Um, when we moved here, my mom, it was very important to her that we speak Creole at home. And so even to this day, we still speak Creole at home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah, I love languages. Like, fascinated. Yeah, it's 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 amazing because like your brain actually thinks differently in the other language that you like. The construction of your brain functions differently in in the other language that you speak, uh, and you realize just how powerful it is. And it's become another sort of element of legibility and practice. Uh, my show that's up now at Mocha. Uh, the curators and the museum and I um, wanted to make clear and specific that everything in the show was going to be translated into into Haitian Creole. So yeah. the title, the catalogs, the wall text, every single thing in the exhibition. And Mocha's in a Haitian, predominantly Haitian community. And so I, I'm, I think after my show, now it's going to be standard practice that everything is translated. That's great. Yeah, it's, it's such a... Uh, it, that seems like it would be such a great experience of being able to, and do you, have you, um, I mean, you've shown at a bunch of places, you know what I mean? Have you mm -hmm. shown like internationally, have you gotten to engage in different communities or sort of, do you ever sort of dive in a little bit to the area that you're showing in? Not yet. I mean, internationally, um, I think I'm starting to show internationally more now and it's starting to pick up now. So that's still, fairly new territory, I think, from my practice, but, um, not yet. Uh, I would like to, it's so fun. Know. Like, like yeah. seeing your work in a different place and how people respond to it differently is so engaging. You know what I mean? It's funny because, yeah. you know, I started showing pretty soon after and my extended family's in Japanese and, you know, I started showing in Tokyo a long time ago. And when we go there, you know, it was funny at the beginning, they would talk about how my work is so quintessentially American and I never mm. even thought of that. You know what I mean? And I was like, Oh yeah, I guess, yeah. I guess it really is kind of American, but the, the way people talk about the work and engage in it is so different in different places. Yeah. I love that. You know, it's, it's such a great, yeah, yeah. you know, it's like music, the same thing, you know, everyone, it can resonate with everyone like art and music, yeah. but there's a different sensibility to how it, goes into the body and resonates you know and that i think yeah is an entry-level language that can break down some of the walls of kind of like i don't want to say segregation but you know like what divides people what what builds walls between people i feel like music yeah. and art is such a great tool to put cracks in that wall you know 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, the, I, hope, I, I like to think about it in terms of like legibility and what, um, what allows something to become legible and what does a viewer or an audience bring to the work um, that allows it to become legible to them? Um, what is internal to the work itself in the mechanics or the materiality of the work that renders itself legible to certain viewers? And then how can I um, calibrate that up and down uh, or left or right uh, as, as, I, as I will? Part of that is language. Um, Part of that is also material and art history. Um, and I haven't had the benefit, as I mentioned, of seeing the work operate outside of um, this country um, and kind of really spending time with the community. But I have seen how it reads very differently from New York to Miami to the West Coast. Um, the differences therein being so drastic that they might as well be different countries. Right. Um, uh, it, it, like really just completely divergent ways of looking at the work, which I welcome, to be honest. Um, yeah. I, I always love that kind of um, kind of diversity in, in viewership and seeing what people sort of what aspects of the work people latch on to and what aspects of the work people miss altogether. Um, for me, that's like, that's fodder to think about um, what other kinds of embedded languages are already here and what else can I put in here? Yeah. It's, it's a micro macro too. It can work in different places. Like I've done murals yeah. on Houston street and had some very interesting conversations with people on the street, <laughs> which is so different yeah. than a gallery. But then I recently yeah. I went back to Pittsburgh and I did a mural of a musician who had passed away, a jazz musician from Pittsburgh from my hometown. And I did a big mural and then speaking to people there, was completely yeah. different than speaking to people in New York City, you know. So it's yeah. it's really fun to engage. That's I guess the Super beauty of public art, you know, is like you engage in a different way than the gallery. Yeah, style. I mean, and uh, I feel like oftentimes in New York, the gouging and the um, cutting into the surface is read as like sensuality or a kind of tactility, or and then um, in other places, it's read as like in, inherently violent and aggressive. And it's, it's the same gesture, right. just sort of read through a completely different lens that totally shifts the tone and tenor of the gesture, which is like infinitely fascinating to me. <laughs> yeah. And it's in, it's, it's, it, it's in the work. It's like baked that dialogue yeah. of a, a multi sort of understanding of, of these images in the process is baked into that work and it operates like its existence in the world when people encounter it sort of like it, that's part of the dialogue of the piece in a way yeah. unconsciously probably but it's there you know unconsciously in some ways and unconsciously in others because i think it's it, it immediately what it highlights for me is it immediately points to this element of loss and privilege um like right away in those divergent readings, we're talking about something being lost, which is exactly the conversation that we're in. We're talking about multilingual, um, uh, being a kind of multilingual relationship country and being an immigrant from another country, you're still talking about loss and privilege. And so grounding that in legibility has always made a lot of sense to me and calibrating legibility on the surface of the paintings has really been, has really been a large part of the project. Yeah. It's like, I feel like in my own work, just thinking about work in general, duality is such a thing and duality mm -hmm. can be seen 
dually as a positive or a negative. You know what I mean? It can be right. polarizing or it can be two sides of one coin. You know what I mean? Like Exactly. It's, exactly. it's really it's an interesting sort of undercurrent I think in, in the way human nature is, you know what I mean? It's this sort yeah, of duality yeah, and, yeah. in images yeah. and in everything really, you know? Yeah. I would agree. What, uh, are you listening to anything new in the studio today or you've kind of back in, are you, did you freeze in the nineties? <laughs> uh, no. some, some people stick like they hit a, a point and they're like, okay, this is my music. And they're like, I don't. Really I mean, I go back there a lot. I go back there a lot. I mean, I read this thing that was like, whatever music was popular during your coming of it, what you were gonna think it's like the best music. Yeah. Um, and I guess the '90s was was that for. Um. So what do you have? What, what do you have? You have the show up now at Mocha. What else do you have coming up? Anything like how can people have the show? Stuff? Have the show up at Mocha that closes uh, April mid April. April 23rd uh, and that's Museum of Contemporary Art in North Miami um, I have an upcoming show this spring at uh, James Fuentes Gallery James has the, sh the space in um, Delancey and Allen in New York in Lower East Side but um, the gallery is opening up in Los Angeles um, and the date for that is TBD um, so look out for that um, coming uh, this spring, probably late April, early May. Uh, and then this fall, I'm doing a show at Locks Gallery here in Philadelphia. And the date for that is also TBD, probably October. Um, those are the three things that are on the horizon. That sounds uh, like right enough. Now. That sounds like enough and, to, and, keep, <laughs> to keep busy. Yeah, it keeps me pretty busy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and the catalog for the Mocha show is out and available through the museum as well. Well, listen, thanks so much for taking the time. It was great to meet and to talk to you about your stuff. Brian, thank you so much. This was fantastic. Thanks. Thanks for the conversation. Sure.